If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 17 this morning. Uh, I was gone last week. I was on a trip with my kid. Um, in, if you're not from this area, if you're new to this area, uh, I think it's an, I found out it's like an Alabama, Georgia-ish kind of tradition uh, that in the sixth grade, uh, or sorry, yeah, the sixth grade you go to D.C., right? If you'd like, when I went, when I was in sixth grade, I was a crossing guard, right? Or I got a safety patrol. So we went to D.C. on a train. Um, my son did not have to do that. He flew. He didn't in a plane. Um, he didn't have to sit on a train the whole way there. Uh, and we went and saw all the things in the city. It was crazy. It was like 13-hour days. Uh, according to my watch, we walked like 13 miles a day. Uh, it was, I'll be honest, it was rough. It was, it was a good time. I was glad to be with my son. But it was, it was, uh, it was tough. Uh, and then, of course, because I'm, they know I'm a pastor, they're like, hey, would you do the devotion on Sunday morning? I'm like, yeah, speaking to a bunch of sixth graders on a bus for seven minutes is exactly what I want to do. Uh, so that was great. And um, uh, I had, uh, mostly, it was just really great to be with my son. Uh, I had to repent a couple times. One of the, one of the reasons I had to repent, the thing I had to repent for, uh, was at the, uh, uh, we, one of the stops was the Bible Museum, which when they told me we were going to the Bible Museum, I immediately had a really bad attitude about that. I'm like, oh, the Bible Museum. Oh, oh this'll be, uh, it's like a giant Hobby Lobby, probably. And, uh, uh, but it was really nice. Like I was like, I had, it was unbelievable. It was incredible. It was a beautiful building. It was incredibly well done. Uh, it, it, it was gorgeous. And so we get to go, so I, they actually had to drag me out of that place. Uh, it was really, really neat to see these Bibles that, uh, I think I just kind of obsessed with the idea that someone would copy by hand these manuscripts and bind them and then they would send someone to travel to get this and bring it back. You know, it's like what, 700s. They had these Bibles from the 700s, hand illustrated, hand drawn. And, and, and just to think of the hours that it would take to do that and, and uh, I, just to see them there, like someone, like a group of people hand wrote this and then it traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles. You would take, the, there's stories that they would take because uh, it was just a rare thing, you know. We, we take good, you know, I have so many Bibles I'm running out, you know, there's, they're, not, they're not expensive anymore, right? But the idea that someone, they would, they would look at a, a monk and they would go, hey, we need you to go pick up this Bible, hope you make it back in two years. Like, and that, he would just go and he would find, so it was really beautiful to see these things that had been cared for, and so, and, and to see all these monuments and memorials and all of these things uh, is, is amazing, but when you put it in the context of what the Bible teaches, uh, or, uh, how C.S., Lewis put it, these things are, are all mortal. Nations and cultures will pass away, but your soul will be forever, right? These monuments and stuff are just temporary compared to what the word of God says will stand forever, uh, which is amazing. So it was a good time, but I'm, I'm glad to be back, uh, especially in this season uh, of Lent, this season, if you're not familiar with the season of Lent, it's just the, it's the 40 days, not counting Sundays, uh, that lead up to... Easter, it's, uh, think of it this way, or the way that I, 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 there's lots of things that can be said about it, but the way that I think about it is, it's just, it's preparing for Easter, right? If Easter is the celebration of the resurrection, then Lent is this reminder that we need resurrection. It's this focusing on our mortality. And so what, I, what we've been in this, uh, this year during this season is this amazing prayer uh, of Jesus, Jesus praying in John 17. So um, 
John, who at the end of his book that he wrote, uh, says this. He says, uh, I imagine if everything that Jesus did, that we saw Jesus do, was written down. I, I, don't, I don't know that the oceans could, tang- could t- contain enough ink to write it down, all that we saw and heard. Amazing. Uh, and the same guy who says that also spends like, of the 21 chapters he wrote, he spends four of them on one evening. And it's the evening before Jesus is crucified. And uh, all this great teaching, uh, it's called the great discourse, followed by what's called the high priestly prayer. We have to give everything names, uh, I don't know why. But this, this high priestly prayer, uh, and that's what we're looking at, is, is Jesus praying to the Father First, in the first five verses, he prays for himself, for his glorification. He knows that he's going to the cross very soon, hours. And then he prays in this moment for his disciples, not just the disciples in the room, but for you and me. He says, I'm praying this not just for these, these here in front of me. He says, I'm praying it for all of them who will believe because of their testimony. Which means he's praying for you and me. Which is crazy. Jesus, God himself incarnate, the second person of the Trinity praying. What you see is this internal dialogue of the Trinity. I think it's the only place in all of scripture that you see the Trinity talking to itself. Uh, this beautiful mystery that we, sur- we worship one God but in three persons and the Son speaking to the Father in this amazing, amazing way. I, I want to read, uh, I'm just going to read uh, part of this prayer. The first five verses he prays for himself and then he prays for the disciples in six through, well, he keeps going but I'm going to stop I think at 19 so we'll see what happens. I might get ramped up and just keep going. Uh, but John 17, I'm going to start in verse six. Jesus praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so 
This is amazing. This is amazing. Uh, so he, it's amazing because of the situation, right? Uh, Jesus standing there in front of his disciples uh, in this upper room in this, this feast, this celebration that they're having, knowing that he's going to the cross. And the last things on his mind is this. Well, he talks about this passage. He talks a lot about truth. He's given in the truth that he is truth. God's given him a truth. He shared that with this truth. He prays at the end, God sanctify them in truth. He prays a lot about truth. He talks about keeping them, protecting them from the evil. And he talks about unity. And he talks about holiness. All of these things come up. Uh, they're actually themes all the way through John that Jesus brings up over and over again. And he prays this for the disciples. I think it's interesting uh, that truth is such a big, big deal uh, in this prayer. I think it's interesting because, well, I mean, I think most of my life, if you ask me, what does a Christian look like? What is a Christian like? What is a, how, how would you describe a Christian? I don't know that the word truth would come up that much. I definitely play, I believe this, I, I have faith in this, but then also if I was gonna paint a picture of a, a, what a Christian looked like, well, they do this and they don't do this. Mostly it's what they don't do, right? And Jesus doesn't talk about that at all. He doesn't talk about what they do and what they don't do. He talks about what they believe. He says, I've given them the truth and they've taken the truth. They've believed the truth. Because the truth is, if you read the, the New Testament, if you read the Gospels, uh, the disciples aren't exactly heroes. Uh, it's not till like Acts and after Acts. Like, it's after the Gospels, the, the time that focuses on Jesus' life, the disciples, it, most of the time they're confused. It's just the whole time, even when they get it right, right? Peter, in this famous moment, he says, Jesus says, what do people say about me? And they tell these things. He says, what do you say about me? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you don't know that. God told you that. Like, he's like, and then right after, right after that, uh, Jesus, Peter tries to pull, Jesus is talking about how he's gonna, he's gonna have to die and be resurrected. And Peter pulls him aside and is like, hey man, you gotta stop talking like that. You're freaking people out. And Jesus says, get, get thee behind me, Satan. The, the disciples are kind of these. Nobody, nobody in this group in this room graduated magna cum laude. Like they're all just missing the boat constantly. They're always confused, right? They, there's even there's even like in the record is so because they're the ones that like them and their friends are the ones that wrote these first four books, right? And they're it's just hilarious how often they're they're just it's embarrassing how much they miss it. Like there's actually conversations recorded how Jesus says a thing and they look at each other and like I have no idea what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? And they're just confused, but yet they follow him anyway. These are not people that were getting it right. Jesus doesn't say, hey, God, these are the best that I could find. Make sure you protect them. He says, these are the ones that you've given me. <laughs> these are mine. They have believed the truth. Here's what they believed. They believed that all of these things that they've seen happen are not just some magic trick of some man, but that God sent me. That everything that I've taught them, that they've heard that's amazing, that came from you. Everything that I've done is from you. Everything that I say is from you. And it couldn't be any otherwise. They believe that I came from your hand. They believe that I am you. They believe all of these things. Here's what happens. Here's, here's what separates them from everybody else. They believe the truth and other people didn't. Christianity is about, more about truth than I really ever think about it being. I think about, well, I need to read my Bible, I need to pray, I need to serve, I need to do all these things. And I think about those and so often I put those first 
when those really should just be the consequence of what I believe is true. Which is, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's like, this is the way the world works. What Jesus came to reveal to us is the very nature of the universe itself. This is what God is like, and this is what the world he made is like. And these disciples, they're certainly not the best of us, but they know truth. And so that's what they have received. And that's incredibly important. What they believe about Jesus is true. I cannot overemphasize how important this is. What you believe about Jesus matters insanely. It's an insane amount. Here's what I mean. Just this week, um, I saw an article that another, uh, that a pastor of a, a big famous church uh, had, had, had to resign. It's one of many. And then I saw another article this morning about another pastor. It's just... It always breaks my heart um, because um, I've been in churches where there's been that kind of, where ministers or people, uh, prominent people have, um, things have been revealed about their life that, that didn't line up with the things that they were teaching. Uh, and it just causes just great damage and destruction in so many people's lives. Uh, and it breaks my heart. Uh, and it feels like it's a thing that's happening more and more and more and more. Um, but, I don't, but I don't think so. Here's what I believe. I, I think that people have always let us, have always let people down. I, I think that since the very beginning that people have always been fallible and have always screwed up. I mean, there wasn't a bunch of people looking at the situation and going, how do you follow Jesus? What about Judas? Judas, like he, he let them down. It wasn't that. They, 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 it, it wasn't, they weren't obsessed with just the disciples and all the miracles. It, these people were obsessed with Jesus. Here's why that's important. The reality is, is that, you know what, I, I read this yesterday, I saw a guy talked about he, how he had left the, the church and how it was really hard and how he missed his friends and he, all the things that he missed about the church, his relationship and his community, all of the people that he spent time with and he missed all of that stuff. And I'm like, man, but you never once miss, mentioned missing Jesus. Like, like what, what, I think that so many of us, I, I think I was brought into church and into, uh, a, a, a led to Jesus through a group of people that were just great. I, 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 lo- I was attracted to the church and the community of believers. It wasn't until later that I began to be attracted to Jesus. And that's good. Like we should, people should be attracted to us. The way that we live with each other, that that should be uh, it should be attractive. But it should always be attractive in a way that points beyond us to Jesus. Because the truth is, is that I, every single one, every single one of us is going to fail. The church gets a lot of criticism, justly, for being hypocritical. Uh, Not always. Fairly, I think, don't get me wrong, the church should be held, we should be even better, right? Christians should be even better. But the reality is human beings are hypocritical, right? Like, nobody, like, nobody's like not going to work because their boss is a hypocrite. Of course he is. Like, so are you, and we all are. Like, we, just, we never live up to our own standards, much less the standards of scripture. But we should be held to higher standards, so we should want this. And, and, and the thing is, like, it's always, the church is always going, I hate to say it this way, but it's true. We, we're always going to be less than we should be. Because we're fallible. Because we want the wrong things, because we're sinful, and we get distracted, and it's been that way since Judas. <laughs> this is the very beginning. Um, it in no way diminishes the beauty of who Jesus is. 
in, in no way changes the truth that Jesus is from God come to reveal what he is like to us. The truth matters. Jesus matters. What we believe about him matters. People will hurt your feelings, but I know guys that in ministry for a very long time, um, actually I know several church planters. Uh, they planted churches and something happened and, they, and, and, and the sad reality is, is that, and this scares me, that um, they don't even go to church at all anymore. And in my mind, I'm like, how can you go from being a pastor in ministry or, or being that involved to not going at all? And the answer is maybe it was never about Jesus. That's what we have to decide, right? That's what Jesus says here in this prayer. What he reveals in this prayer is the difference is not the disciples are somehow act better than everybody else. They don't. It's not the disciples, I mean, later in this evening, they're all going to run away. <laughs> Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus at all. It's not that they act better, they're somehow more courage. It's what they believe about Jesus is true. That's what we have to fix firmly in our minds. That's what we have to convince ourselves of. That's what we have to be convinced of, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he's going to do. Now, the church is beautiful. The church is amazing. It is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church so much, but... The church is about pointing others to Jesus, doing his work in this world. So he says, after this, he says, uh, he also says this, Father, he prays Holy Father, the only place where he actually ever says that, Holy Father is interesting, but he says, Father, keep them, protect them. He says, I'm leaving. He's so, the time is so near that Jesus is already talking about it, it's already happened. I'm leaving, but I'm leaving them here. I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna go into, back, coming back to the Father, but I I'm leaving them here because the reality is the church has work to do. After Jesus leaves and goes, he, the church still ha- has work to do. So we are left in this world and he says, protect them. He says, keep them in your name. I've kept them while I was here. I've protected them from evil. You now protect them. He has guarded them and now he's entrusting them to the Father to keep them safe. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things aren't gonna happen. A lot of bad things happen to the disciples uh, after this. But it, doesn't mean that, but it, or it doesn't mean that bad things aren't gonna happen. It is gonna be hard things. What it means is he's gonna keep them from evil. What it means is that the God is going to be there with them in all of the things. It means that the God who created the mountains will be with us even in the valleys. That's what he means, to keep them and protect them. And he says he wants them to do this. He says, keep them and protect them so that they will be one, so that they will be unified. Keep them that they might be one. Here's the thing. Um, I wish that was one of the things the church was known for, (laughs) for unity. I wish that was one of the things that we were known for. I don't know that that's always been the case, but I do know this. It's one of the things that Jesus felt important enough to mention right before he goes to the cross in his prayer to his father. The unity, that we would be so unified in seeing Jesus as great, that we would be so unified in longing to see his mission go forward in this world, that we would be so together that what matters most that Jesus is glorified, that we would put aside all other things. He, he's eventually, Jesus already taught this, and, and Paul's gonna go on and, and do even more work, and the other disciples in doing this, that even Jews and Gentiles, those who are completely separated, somehow 
previously separated should somehow be brought together to worship this one God together. Culture's culture's different, yes. Different likes and dislikes, yes. But always committed above all other things to seeing Jesus' name lifted up. That we are unified and committed to this. Here's... And not only that, it's in being a part of the church, in being unified and fighting to have the same will and the same goals and and, and even in disagreements to put aside all that we can to make sure that the mission of the kingdom goes forward. It's in those moments that I think that we're actually changed. If we just surrounded ourselves with a bunch of people who thought the exact same things that we did, then we're just a club. It's when we set aside our differences, when we figure out how to work together for the glory of God, when we figure out how to work together so that Jesus' name is great, when we figure out how to be unified in all those things, that's actually one of the processes that God uses to shape us, to mold us, to, to change us. It's one of the beautiful things about us being together is that when we hurt each other's feelings, we forgive. When our feelings are hurt, we go and we confess and say, hey, I was hurt by this, I was wounded by this, and we forgive. This is where we practice and work out being wounded and forgiving and forgiving when we're wounded. That happens here in the church. And so Jesus is praying, God, keep them and protect them from evil because what evil does is divide and I need you to, I want you, I'm asking you to keep them and keep them unified. Jesus didn't say that the world is gonna look at us and know that we are followers of him by how we act, by how, how strictly we keep things, but it's, it's how we love one another that the world's gonna know us. And it happens here. You, you don't just come into the world this way. It's a thing that we practice and we learn to do. Learning to love one another. Learning to forgive. I can tell you that it's one of the most difficult things to do. To learn to love, to learn to forgive, to learn to accept. Does that mean that you have to like everybody? Absolutely not. <laughs> of course not. We're different. Does it mean that we have to all absolutely look just alike, act just alike? No, of course not. It means that even though we don't act alike, even though we're not from the same backgrounds, it means that we find a way of setting aside anything that doesn't help us advance the kingdom of God in our hearts, in the church, and in the world. So he prays for unity. And then he kind of, at the end of this section, he actually says this. He says, sanctify them. Sanctify means to set apart. It's like holiness, right? Uh, Holiness, we talk about holiness a lot here. The word holiness just means something that's set set apart for a dedicated purpose. Uh, The example that I like to use because it entertains me is the guest towels that I grew up with in my house right? In my house, there were towels that no one ever used, ever. They were the guest towels. They were holy. They were set aside for a purpose, right? They weren't for commoners like us. So that's how I like to think of holiness. And so God had all these things that he would set aside and and set aside, and he for purposes. They were, they were sanctified. And he would sanctify people in the Old Testament. It's priests and it's prophets that God sanctifies and set aside. And Jesus says, I've sanctified myself. Doesn't mean that Jesus is like acting better, but he set aside himself to do this thing, to be obedient to God, even under the cross, so that they might be sanctified. And he says, 
I sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send them in the world, so I am sending them into the world. For my sake, I can't, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So there's this idea that God, Jesus says, listen, I'm setting them apart. They are set apart. Sanctify them. Grow them in, in holiness. And, and that is one way of thinking about holiness. But another thing that contributes to it being set aside is that it's set aside for a single purpose. Does that make sense? It's set aside for just this moment. It's set aside for just this purpose and thing. So, um, we, God calls us to be growing in sanctification, growing in holiness. Now, here's the deal. Uh, in my mind, holiness means a thing. Uh, I have to fight the image of sanctification being like um, just the person who follows the rules the best. That's not, what is, that's not what's going on at all. It's, it's the way that we learn to be wholly committed to Christ above all other things. That's what he's talking about. Teach them to be wholly committed to Christ above all things. Uh, so uh, they did this documentary on uh, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. I'll fight you if you want to later about that. That's fine. Uh, but Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, and one of the things that Jordan would say is he says, everybody wants to have my life, but no one wants to work like I do. No one, no one would want to be me for a day, is what he says. Because he, everybody that he played with said that they've never seen anybody so committed to the game as he was. That he completely dedicated himself to the game of basketball to the point that when he retired and they interviewed him, it was one of the saddest things I've ever read. It sounded like someone who couldn't figure out what life looked like without basketball because he had so dedicated himself. I heard an interview with another athlete. Uh, this, was on, this was just last year. And this, he, in his... Uh, the world that he competed in, the, the game that he competed in, uh, he came in second two years in a row. And he said, you know what I decided to do after that second year is I decided that I was not gonna play games anymore. I wasn't just gonna show up and just train, that I was gonna give myself over to it completely. And he says, so for the next year, no matter what, every day, all I did was eat with an idea of towards winning next year. All, my, he said, my girlfriend would say, hey, we're going, going out at night. He's like, nope, can't go out tonight. Gotta get 10 hours sleep. 10 hours sleep. Dude, if I've slept 10 hours, you check on me. Stuff I'm not, I, I'm probably in a coma. 10 hours? Anyway, he, but he's an athlete, so I'm not. So he's 10 hours every night. I wouldn't go out with my friends. Why? Because I've dedicated myself to that. Hey, man, you want to come over and hang out, pizza and beer? Can't. I only eat this. Why? Because I've wholly committed myself to winning next year. He actually won the next six years. That's what this is talking about. Wholly committing yourself to something. Think about it like a, a marriage. Right? Think about marriage this way, right? One of the reasons that marriage is special is it's one person looking at another saying, I am wholly committing myself to you. Can you imagine a marriage? Unfortunately, I probably, you probably can. A marriage where you're only partially committed to that relationship? It's not a healthy marriage. It's a marriage headed for disaster. But one of the beautiful things about marriage is this wholly committing to this other person, to love this person on days when they don't love you well, to love this person on days when they don't deserve to be loved well. That's marriage. It's this wholly committing yourself to this person. It's why it was set up to model how Christ loved the church. 
Jesus says marriage is supposed to be this example of how Christ loved the church. And that's what we have here. This idea that we wholly commit ourselves to Christ. This doesn't mean, and if you grew up in church, what you are hearing me say right now might be, I just gotta buckle down and try harder. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we get up and what we do is we apply the truth every single day. It's not that I get up and I try harder to just follow more rules. I'll just I'll spend 10 more minutes in prayer. I'll do an extra Bible study. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I get up every single day and I apply the truth that the disciples believed about who Jesus is to every area of my life. Let me give you an example. I get up in the morning, and I don't know about you, but there's days when I just feel defeated from day one. I don't know, have you ever gotten out of bed and felt like the days beat you, and you before your feet even hit the ground? I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. I think about the week that I've had and I've failed over and over and over and over again and in those moments when I'm gonna snap at someone, I'm gonna be short-tempered and I'm gonna be all these things, it says I take the truth and the truth about all of the failures of the week, I take the truth of Jesus Christ and I apply it to that situation and go, hey, even though that you have failed over and over and over and over again, you were loved deeply by the Father. And I take that truth and I apply it. When I don't live up to being the husband that I should be, when I don't live up to being the father that I should be, when I don't live up to being the pastor that I should be, and I feel defeated, you apply the truth of Jesus, that who I am that matters most is a child of the king because of what Jesus has done, not because of who I am. And I apply that truth to my heart. On days when everything's going great, when I think that everything, I've got everything under control, I apply the truth that I'm not in charge, that I could never do anything on my own worth any kind of value at all. When I sin and when the devil whispers in my ear, how could you be a pastor? How could you even be loved by God at all? Because this is what's in your heart and you know it. I apply the truth that the most important thing about me is not the worst thing that I've ever done, but it's that Jesus died on the cross for me. That is the application of the truth every single day that leads to unity. It's the application of the truth every day, all day long, that leads to growth. It's the application of truth. So in the Old Testament, so uh, there's this great this, this story of God building his people. He says, I'm gonna build a nation. It's gonna be descendants of this man named Abraham who doesn't have any kids, crazy story. But anyway, they end up in, uh, in Egypt and there's a bunch of the, uh, slaves and, and they, they, you know, it's a crazy story. But anyway, God leads them out and he takes them to Mount Sinai and he says, I'm gonna be your God, I'm gonna be your people. He saves them and rescues them. I'm gonna take you to this promised land and you're gonna be my nation, a holy nation, a nation of priests for me. And he says, he comes down on the mountain and the mountain is smoking and it's filled with lightning and all these things and uh, the people, he says, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna dwell among you and the people say this, hard pass on you dwelling among us. We don't want that. We, that's, it's too much. Uh, and he says, no, no, it's gonna be fine. I'm gonna come and dwell among you and then how can that be? This big question, how can a holy God dwell among a people uh, who are not holy? And then you have all these weird books. If you've ever tried to read the Bible uh, through in a year, this is the section you quit in, uh, Leviticus and Numbers. It's all these rules about uh, how they're supposed to live uh, how they're supposed to, the things they're supposed to do so that a holy God can live among them. Uh, and here's the thing about that list. That list was supposed to be a help. I, I think that we look at that list and think, man, that must have been really, really impossible to like, how could you ever live up to all of these things that you're supposed to do? Uh, 
the list was actually supposed to be a help. Uh, For example, there were rules about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, and they they may sound crazy to us. They couldn't eat crawfish or pork rinds. Like, they couldn't have these foods, right? And so to us, that sounds crazy. How could that possibly be? But the idea was that every time they would go to eat, they would be reminded that they were God's people and the set apart, and that they were to be wholly committed to God even in what they ate. All of these rules were supposed to remind them that they were a people set apart, sanctified, wholly committed to God. It wasn't about the rules. The rules were supposed to be a help to help them be wholly committed to God so that they could find deep satisfaction there. I don't encourage you to get your Bible out and read it every day because I think that reading the Bible will check a box and make Jesus love you more. I encourage you to read your Bible every day and to pray every day, to come to worship because it's essential, to, to, find, uh, to find, to sacrifice to be a part of community. I encourage you to do all of those things, not because God's gonna love you more, but because in those things it will help you be more wholly committed to living for him. They're helps that help glorify, they help glorify Christ in your heart and in your mind. They're not boxes to be checked. They're not gonna make Jesus love you more but they may help you love him more. That's what we want. We want to be wholly committed by applying the truth of who he is and what he's done. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how we live in this evil world, knowing that we are kept by our Father because of who Jesus is and what he's done. This is the Christian life, being wholly committed to him in our thinking in our speaking, in our feeling, in our relationships, in all that we do. It means this. It means that our time is not our own, but it's his, and that's a better thing. It means that our money is not our own. It's his, and that's actually better for us. Knowing that Jesus is this kind of person, knowing that this kind of God is the God that has loved us and pursued us, man, it makes it makes what initially feels like a dying to ourself, because it is, Bible says as much, uh, it, it makes us know and be eventually eager to give to him even when it hurts. Because we desire to be wholly committed to something. The truth is that we're all wholly committed to something. There's something that we're doing. Uh, most, most, uh, most days I'm probably wholly committed to my own comfort and welfare. And it would be so much better to be wholly committed to Christ because when I wholly commit myself to my own comfort, I become more selfish, I become more withdrawn. Instead of living like Christ would have the world work, how the world will work under his rule is constantly giving and loving and pouring ourselves out so that others are lifted up and pointed to Christ. This is what we do. This is why we value these things. This is why it's important. Because of this Christ who has done these things. Not because of what we've done, but because of our faith in him. This is the gospel. This is what we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. That my eternal salvation is not built on my pathetic accomplishments. Because that's what they are. They're pathetic. Not my achievements, but there come my eternity, my salvation is built, is achieved by another. That I have a righteousness, that we have a righteousness uh, imputed to us. By another, 
an alien righteousness. So we praise you for this. God, I just pray that we see how beautiful it is that God, you came to earth and you came to the outsiders, you came to the outcasts. You spoke truth, you revealed truth so that we might know what you are like. You are a God whose heart pursues us. You long to make us whole, to heal us. May we see that as so beautiful that we're drawn to you. Teach us the truth of who Jesus is in a deeper way and then teach us to apply that reality every single day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.